If you like what we do here over at Acre Interview and would like to support us and help us grow, you can head over to our Patreon channel at patreon.com forward slash Interview where you can donate monthly. We have different tiers ranging from $1 per month right up to $25 with each tier offering different rewards. All the monthly donations greatly help us to continue creating these video and audio interviews so please take a look and I thank you in advance. Enjoy. So Mike, when did you first become interested in aviation? Yeah, I was always interested in flying as a boy, uh, but I, I didn't know any other pilots. My family weren't connected to the military, weren't connected to the flying world at all. So it all just seemed a bit of a pipe dream. Uh, and sadly, this was before the days of the internet, so it was <laughs> difficult to find out about this, this hidden world. Um, when I was at school, we used to get the, uh, the Chinooks the arm, and, and the Army doing lots of uh, flying across Salisbury Plains. So I used to hear those, see the Hercules flying over my house. Nice. I was just interested in it and obviously going on holiday. Um, and I remember as a teenager, you were allowed to go up to the cockpit and have a look around and meet the pilots back, back in those days before terrorism sort of stopped all that. Uh, and I remember quite distinctly uh, a holiday when I was about 15 or so and went up to the cockpit. I uh, spoke to the pilots, my brother was there as well, and it was this night, uh, to dusk setting, and you could see the lights of France, uh, and you could see the channel ahead, Paris was below us. Um, and it was just so absorbing, just seeing this environment, so I've really got to try and, and get into this world. So that was it, through <laughs> that was That was the trigger, really. Yeah. So when did you join the RAF, and can you talk us through some of your flying training? Yeah, I joined the University Air Squadron in 1996 at Southampton, flying, we're in the Boscombe Down, uh, museum, which is fantastic. I've never been here before. Um, and I learned to fly at, at Boscombe Down itself on Bulldogs with the University Air Squadron. I, I didn't get in the first time round, so I finished school, uh, did my A-levels and then applied to the Air Force as a pilot. And I was quite a young sort of 17, 18 year old and I, I, I didn't get in. I went to officer an air crew selection centre at Cranwell thought, gave a reasonable account of myself for three days <laughs> and then got a rejection letter and thought, well, God, what am I going to do now? Uh, so I went to university, joined the UAS and it was, it was fantastic because I just met a, a really like-minded, like fun bunch of people, started to learn how to fly the Bulldog and, and then went back for Air Force selection a couple of years later and then got in, got given a bursary for a couple of years at university and then got in after that. So there was a really great lesson there and, and actually I look back on that time and think it probably wasn't, it was probably the right decision, it probably wasn't my the right time for me to get in when I was right. 17 or 18. Joining, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a man's world, the RAF, and it's a serious business and um, I was still the schoolboy really when I applied the first time round and so going again at 21, just a little bit more life experience. And, and meant I was much better able to tackle officer training and flying training when it subsequently happened. So there was no bitterness there when you got rejected? No, first. no bitterness yeah. at all. I mean, a um, bit of horror that I hadn't made it and what's <laughs> yeah. I going to do now? Yeah. But then uh, it, a, a great lesson in it, if things don't happen the first time round, then it's, it's a brilliant opportunity to go again and, and, and look at why it didn't, didn't work and yeah. teach yourself, you know, prepare yourself better and, and have another go. So did you have a frontline aircraft you wanted to go into? I always wanted to fly the Jaguar actually when I was um, when I was applying. It seemed like a really exciting jet. Uh, I really enjoyed the low-level flying when I was doing the flying training. Um, 
and uh, the base seemed like a happy place to be. People spoke very highly of that, of, of the people on the squadron. The Jaguar Force had a reputation of being sort of professional but relaxed and friendly as well and it seemed like a, a great place to kind of aim your sights. Um, but I was very aware as well during flying training that you, it's not your choice yeah. and um, you can try and you can aim for something um, but clearly um, it doesn't always work out so I always had that in the back of my mind and that's why it was fantastic to be able to to make it through the system and actually get onto uh, onto the Jags. Yeah so what was the Jag actually designed for? The Jag is a fairly unusual aircraft in that it was designed as a trainer an advanced trainer I guess in that a bit like the Hawk the way the Hawk's been used um, during the 60s that that, that was how it was envisaged, but they found that actually it would go supersonic, it had the, the capacity to do a whole lot more than just be a trainer, and so it became a mainstay frontline low-level strike attack aircraft for several decades. I heard the Jag would be a terrible trainer for many Jag pilots <laughs> if it came into service. It was, it was it certainly, you had your work cut out learning how to fly it. Um, by the time I got to the Jaguar OCU, I'd been in the Air Force for about um, three or four years already, had a few hundred hours of flying training. I've been flying Hawks for a year. And I remember walking into that first, the first time I walked into the hangar at Coltishall and, and looked at these jets close up. It was incredibly daunting. And it had a, about a, another year's training. I think the Jag OCU was about nine months. Um, and again people would not make it through that course so by the time I got to the OCU around about 50% of the people hadn't made it that far and there were still axes you know chopping axes hanging over the OCU on the Jag as well so it was never guaranteed I just remember going up to this aeroplane the first time and thinking how on earth am I going to learn how to fly this thing and and you you get thrown into the beating heart of the RAF as well so um, during training you're on a course, you're a student, you've got a little student body, you're in a sort of bubble if you like and then when you go to your first frontline type you're very aware that these things are flying operational missions, combat missions and now it's your job to prove that you're good enough to join that team. So there's a huge amount of pressure there and just going up to the aeroplane looking around it seeing it had bombs hanging off the wings looking into the cockpit at these hundreds of switches and, and, and this enormous sort of sense of how on earth am I going to be able to crack this and that, that's a feeling really that stays that stayed with me for nearly all of my Air Force career that the sense that um, I mean it's, it's imposter syndrome I suppose isn't it but the, the sort of feeling that you weren't really good enough and you'd kind of somehow made it through the net and and every time it got through a tour and then I was an instructor a tactics instructor I thought I'd looked at the the people who were two or three years ahead of me who were tactics instructors and thought, well, I'm never going to be as good as them. But you find yourself doing that role yeah. and then people get promoted and they become, I became a squadron leader of running the QI course, the tactics instructor course, and had exactly the same feelings and thought, well, I don't want to mess this up. Uh, and so that sense and then uh, and ultimately then taking on a, a Typhoon squadron, commanding a Typhoon squadron and, and taking that on operations, that sense of, am I going to be able to good enough to do this? Um, is my approach going to be correct? Um, that sense of, of nervousness of, of your own confidence is always it was always there slightly under the surface about yeah. whether I was really up to the job or whether I was somehow just managing to just muddle my way through a career that never left me. I'm sure that's probably a good thing to have as well if you think you know it all it's probably a bad thing. Yeah well I, 
I was always just honest with myself about that and, and I, I think that's a great way to be. I think you know there's lots of sayings about overconfident pilots and, and that's never normally a good thing. So I, I found you know as an instructor as well the students that did best are the ones that were had this kind of composure and this measured approach um, and, and were humble enough to take advice on board and learn you know and, and talk to each other and the students that were cocky were never the ones that actually did that well in the long run or, or they'd you know they have some big speed bumps on the way and they'd have yeah. to correct their approach and I, I think that that's something that probably a lot of my peers would have found as yeah. well in you know when they've done instructional duties too. So what was it like going to your first frontline squadron and being like a proper fighter pilot as it was? Uh, my first squadron was six squadron and the, the, the jet I'm standing in front of has got six squadron colours on it so that, that's awesome. Walking into the crew room it was that same sense of right well I've somehow <laughs> got into the RAF, I'm somehow now a flight lieutenant yep. and you walk into this crew room, I remember my, my boss is a, a man called Mike Sears who, uh, OC6 squadron fantastic uh, human being, hugely talented pilot. He'd got an MBE, he was a young wing commander in his mid-30s, um, the youngest person I think who flew in Gulf War One. And then the whole force had been doing these operational um, sorties for, for years, Northern Watch had been active in Bosnia and all, all these sort of places. And as a, as a 23 or 24 year old walking into the crew room with that lot, you just have a sense of not really feeling worthy and that you need to keep your head down um, and earn your spares and, and just this feeling of having to work hard, constantly learn these tactics. Always getting into the, the tactical computer, learning about surface-to-air missile systems, enemy fighter aircraft and then trying to get good at flying the JAG itself. And so this sense of, of kind of always climbing up a hill, if you like, of, of always trying to be a little bit better um, and always uh, finding that that there was room for improvement. I never ever landed off a sortie and thought, yep, well I nailed that. There was always a sense of, well, that went, that went okay, and all these things were not that good, and I need to work on all these things. And again, that's something else that endured as well. People would, even, you know, hugely experienced squadron leader typhoon pilots would land off air defense sorties, and they'll go and sit in front of the computers, they'll play the videos back in slow time, and they'll spend a couple of hours debriefing all their shots. There'll always be errors. They could always have turned a bit better, um, got a bit more out of the airplane, you know, um, worked the tactics a little bit better. So it's never a finished product flying. You're always learning, you're always improving. And as a combat pilot, you're always interrogating everything that you've done to work out how it could have been better, uh, how it could have been done better. So Mike, did you ever fly the Jag at Red Flag? I did fly a Jag at Red Flag, yeah. Um, it was a, a sort of typical Jag sortie of uh, tanking beforehand and then dropping down into low level, trying to evade all the F-15s and F-16s who are trying to shoot you down. Uh, and then dropped a few bombs out in Red Flag as well on the Nellis Rangers. I think one of the most interesting memories of flying the Jag out there was actually trying to tank off a VC-10 up at about 20,000 feet and uh, not having the performance in the JAG to get behind and actually tank with the VC-10 and had to request a thing called a toboggan. And so you'd, you'd say, oh, I'm struggling, I'm buster, struggling for performance, request a toboggan. And what that meant was the VC-10 would then lower its nose and start a descent. And then you had, using gravity and, uh, and the burners, you then had enough power on the JAG to then go downhill and speed up to connect with the VC-10 mm -hmm. and then plug in. So the toboggan was something that I remember from the from, uh, Red Flag Jag days, not needed in the Typhoon. <laughs> 
Yeah, it didn't have to go into min reheat, or you had two switches or something. Yeah, you had these things called part throttle reheat, which it, gave yeah. you a kind of bit of bit of burner, which you definitely needed. Yeah. So how did the Americans view the Jag? I think the Americans were a bit intrigued by the Jag. Yeah. They, I mean, you, the thing is, I was flying at the end at the end of its days. You've got to really look at it in the context of the sort of 70s, 80s, and 90s, where it's a really potent strike platform and really well respected, and it had a really good reconnaissance capability as well. It had a great pod on it, so a great tactical, low-level reconnaissance capability. So, when you look at it through the sort of lens of the Cold War, that's really where the Jaguar was, you know, in its in its element. And I, there is there are pilots who've flown, you know, way more hours than, it than me. I just caught the tail end of it. I think there was a brilliant bit in the book where uh, I think you were behind yeah. it. Was it a B2? It just supposed to look like quite the contrast there, dragging a B2. Oh, yeah, and I got into trouble with the AOC, actually, because oh. I was a QI on 41 Squadron at the time, and we went out to Red Flag, and we were taxing out, and I was behind uh, the B2, so this huge wing. And then there were a couple of Jags, and then over my right shoulder were these F117s as well. Oh, yes. And so there was stealth in front, and there was stealth behind, and there was us. And I think that day we had a Paveway 3 on one jet. She couldn't carry the Paveway 3 and a tiled pod, so we had a, I had the tiled pod, the other guy had the Paveway 3. So we were bringing one bomb to the party between the pair of us. And these stealth jets obviously had it all wrapped up. And got back to Coltishall, and there was a happy hour. And I remember just then the AOC came up and said, well, how is Red Flag Sutton? And I said, well, I, th I think the Jag might have had its day. And that wasn't a good thing to say to, to, to a two-star. He wasn't very happy with that, and he marched <laughs> over to talk to my boss. But it was quite clear that it kind of had by that time. Could you share a couple of stories that stick out in your mind from flying the Jag? Um, <clears throat> nervousness about this tenacity it had to um, pitch and uh, if you if you bunted and rolled in the Jaguar then there was uh, potential for it to flick at low level and crash and you're on ground school we were shown a video uh, a HUD video of someone who had done this and so um, there was always a real nervousness around that and so when you turn the Jag you'd always kind of pull back a little or I always did pull back a little bit of just to get a bit of positive G and then roll because I was quite nervous about that kind of potential for it to flick Later on in my career on the Jag, I used to teach um, operational low flying, so down to 100 feet. And so you'd be flying, someone else would be flying, you'd be sat in the back, and they'd be careering along at 100 feet and 480 knots. Um, and I was always, I'm turning corners at low level, I was always quite nervous about the potential for the Jag to bite. Yes. Um, so I think, you know, that was something that I, I always had a really healthy respect um, for the jet like that. I think just the general flying of it though was, was fantastic and you, you know, you've had other people on this and people know and love the Jag but it, you, you'd strap it on, it felt like you were kind of strapping yeah, on a rucksack sense, yeah. when, when you kind of got into Jag, got into the ejection seat and off you went and going around the world on this thing. I think the most enjoyable flying I've actually had with it in the Jag has been in the States because you get up every day from Davis Monthan for example and you just got blue skies and you know you're off you're not putting in this thing or anything. and it's uh yeah there's no need for the immersion suits and, and you're off and you're careering around the world going uh, we did a land away once to um yuma uh, american marine base we went to this range called the chocolate mountain range and dropped paveway threes out there and i remember just thinking what you could drop these huge bombs and you could watch them fly wow. and then landing into yuma um when you land in a marine base, you can't just get out of your, your aircraft and, and walk. You have to look at the tarmac markings and there were these red lines that were 
um, sort of marked down. I just assumed they were for taxing or something like that. And I remember just crossing the red line and just walking. And our American exchange guy was shouting, come back, come back. Because <laughs> uh, I think the guards are quite strict over there. And if you walk along the wrong place of the pan, then you can get yourself into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I'll point a gun at you. So how many hours did you get on the Jag? Uh, the Jag, about uh, 950, just under 1,000.